Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Greetings. This is Paul Holdengraber, your host for The Quarantine Tapes, brought to you by Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. I am thrilled to announce that we have asked various former Quarantine Tape guests to host during a week guests of their own choice in total freedom. They have absolute carte blanche on their choices. This week, I have asked Eddie Glaude, the distinguished university professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, to be our host. Eddie Glaude is the author, most recently, of the extraordinary study on James Baldwin, entitled Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. I hope you will enjoy these quarantine tapes. So I am delighted to have the opportunity to talk with uh, Natasha Traithaway, former U.S. poet, U.S. poet laureate, Pulitzer Prize winning poet, um, brilliant, brilliant poet, uh, and an all around beautiful human being. Um, it is my delight uh, to, to, to welcome you to the quarantine tapes. Let me just ask a basic Thank question. You. Mm-hmm. How are you holding on in this madness? How are you holding up? You know, I, I I feel pretty lucky to be holding up really well. You know, we're close to my husband's parents, so um, we get to to see them in in some socially distanced ways, or we we get a, a test and we can see them. We can get outside and walk around, in, even in the cold. And um, you know, we had had a fire in our house uh, three oh. years ago. And so it took two years to restore it. We just got back in it three months before the lockdown. So it's kind of like feeling lucky to get back in our home and to to be among our books and to get to know this place again. And so I, I felt pretty good. You miss being on the road? Sometimes, you know, because yeah. it has been weird to do, you know, I've been doing a book tour and it's been weird to do these virtual events, especially for me as an emotional book as Memorial Drive is. I find myself, you know, sometimes weeping at certain questions I get and I'm just in a room by myself. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, you know, Memorial Drive is such an extraordinary memoir and it it, it, it took me in so many different directions and I want us to get to that, but but I wanted, you know, what did it feel like to write, to have the book come out in the midst of what is, you know, in some ways a kind of moral reckoning with the country? I mean, you have, there's COVID, but, you know, there was George Floyd. There's all of this stuff that was happening. How how did you, and given that it's such a deeply personal book, but it's not just that, right? 
Right. It, 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 it has this broader reach, although, you know, and then, of course, you have to work. I, I, you know, like like Kiese, I listened to a conversation with you and Kiese and, and Kiese mentioned about Sarah, whom I love too, yes. um, <laughs> about us worrying about about them worrying about you because, you know, the country travels in black trauma porn, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all of this other stuff. But how did you feel about the book coming out in the midst of all of what was happening at the time? Well, you know, I have always in my work tried to place the examination of my personal history against the backdrop and within the context of American history, Mm -hmm. history writ large. And so I couldn't have anticipated, you know, this reckoning that we would find ourselves in. But of course, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in the very beginning of the book is that, you know, my mother died in the shadow of Stone Mm -hmm. Mountain the largest monument to the Confederacy. And so, you know, you you have these two, uh, for me, existential wounds side by side, the death of my mother and our um, original sin of white slavery and white supremacy emblazoned on this huge mountain right behind that death. They, you know, they, 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 they are side by side in my psyche. And so, um, it, it makes a strange kind of sense that we would be having this reckoning at the same time that I am having my own public reckoning through this book about yeah. the loss of my mother. How has it been talking about something so, I mean, I'm, of course, if you read your poetry and, and, and your mother uh, is in the, not in the shadows, but she's in the background, right? You didn't treat her in, in the same way as you treated her in, in Memorial Drive, right? But I mean, I, you know, I'm a country boy from Mississippi, as yeah. you know. Yes. <laughs> and there is, there is something about, there, there's something, how can I put this? There, there is something about privacy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that is, and I, I want to get to that in a minute, but what, did it, what does it mean to, to be out there like that? Because, you know, we hold stuff close to the chest, mm-hmm. right? So what does it mean to be reading and allowing people to read your life in this way? Well, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I know that I am a deeply private person. And I am always... Um, Confronted by people, you know, even when I go and give poetry readings, who feel that um, the things that I write about, because I'm a deeply autobiographical poet, that the things that come out of my poems seem so deeply personal to Mm. them, and that they wonder how I can um, make bare so much of that. Um, And and I talk about um, form. I talk about the elegant envelope of form that a poem is, the way that you are shaping the language, which requires a kind of distance and restraint. I make use of silence as as much as I make use of revelation, revealing things. That's also true in a memoir, even in the memoir where there was more space to meditate on things. And I, I had to not wear the mask that um, the mask of form uh, that the poet has, even in writing autobiographical poems, but it is still a shaped work of language Mm -hmm. and silence and restraint. And the way of telling the story um, also keeps a core of my private self safe. Mm 
Right. Now, when I talk about it, the if you ask me about the Confederacy, if you ask me about domestic violence, if you ask me about all that kind of stuff, I can get on a soapbox and just go and talk mm-hmm. about like what we need to know and what we need to be doing. When you ask me things about my mother, sometimes that's when uh, I get overcome with emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, it's not a private emotion for me anymore. I've been living in a state of bereavement my entire adult life. Right. It is indeed a part of who I am. And um, it is my, my greatest and deepest wound. And yet talking about it continues to expose it to light. And so I remind myself of Rumi. The wound is the place where the light enters you. Mm. That's what I feel like oh, absolutely. when I'm talking about it. And, you know, I love that 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 formulation around form as as a response because of what what in some ways what it is one thing to kind of you know be an autobiographical writer where you are on the page mm-hmm. and you know someone is reading it in the privacy of their own home like they're encountering you on the page. It's another thing for you to be present as as they're as they're grappling with that. There's this moment where you. In, in this amazing book where, where you kind of let us know what you're doing. And it's in the diary chapters, that last line where you say, here, I had begun to compose myself, mm-hmm. right? So you're letting us know as the reader, right? That, that, that there's something that's being crafted here, right? right? Not only a self, right? Mm-hmm. A resilience, which you use that word in that chapter, right? So don't just read me as, read this as victim right. narrative. There's something else right. is happening here that's really powerful. And I, you know, the silence is, so this is something that I was really kind of grappling with. I want to ask you this as, as, as someone, you know, even though you left Gulfport when you were six to go, how old were you? Yes, six yeah, I started first grade in Atlanta. But let me tell you something. There's a moment I want to, what page was that on? 25? I think it was on page 25, where you're describing walking down the railroad tracks with your daddy, flattened pennies and crawfish building them. Oh, I I was just (laughs) out of it. I was gone. But there was something about the silences. You know, there's a line on page 113 where you say, her measured restraint, comma, the origins of my own. Mm -hmm. And the silences in the book are loud. Mm-hmm. Even even the way you space it in places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just, it, it took me back to my own home, right? And my daddy, um, you know, he could, he, he installed a fear in me very early. And I've been trying to prove that I'm that I'm not a coward ever since. Mm-hmm. And the house could be loud. But what was distinctive about the house mm-hmm. was his silences. Mm-hmm. What is it about the South that shapes you as a writer? Because when I see silences as, as prevalent as this, right, um, it just reminds me of, of home, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that there are, la- you know, where, where, where an eye, a certain glance. Right a certain shift of the body could do something. Talk a little bit about, about that for me in terms of this, your work and, and this particular book. Well, I was thinking about how much is, is implication, how much is uh, implicit in gesture, mm. in, you know, uh, a look. Um, and 
And I feel like I, I learned so much in a gestural way. I mean, not just, you know, in the house, having to read my mother's gestures uh, as a means to understand the situation that we were in inside the house, but also even before that, the way I was learning um, to, to read uh, symbols and gestures, the, the figurative language of my grandmother and my great aunt. I mean, there's this moment that I talk about, um, I sort of think of my aunt Sugar as, you know, one of my earliest muses. I mean, the way that she was teaching me about the figurative language of objects and the power of juxtapositions. She, um, at some point, um, had dementia, you know, um, we, you know, we just, you know, called it, we thought she had old timer's disease, you know, that's what we call it back then. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but at some point she quit speaking and she mostly would communicate if she did speak um, in, in kind of like musical chanting, like the, the, the way she would have chanted the Psalms or something, she would say everything like that. But when she wasn't speaking, um, she was doing things gesturally. And I remember one day she knocked on the back door and in her hand, she had three figs that she had plucked from the tree between her house and my grandmother's house. And she and I had been picking pit figs from that tree for a long time and she would make preserves. And at this point, she couldn't do that anymore. You know, we had taken away even her ability to cook because it was so dangerous. But she came to that back door and she handed, she just reached, she knocked on the screen door and she handed out those three figs in her hand and then walked away. Mm. And so from that gesture, I had to read so much. I had to read, here's something we used to do that we can't do. But I'm going to remind you mm -hmm. who I am and mm -hmm. what we did. And also, just the idea that they were underripe. She had to get them before the birds did. Right. And so they weren't ripe. I had to be patient. I had to wait for them to ripen to receive the gifts that they were going to give me. Mm. That's how she sent messages through silence. Yeah. I, I just... I, I, I you know, sometimes... Um, well, while I was reading your book, you you did this to me too. <laughs> while I was reading the book, and and you know, I was thinking about my grandmother, yeah. uh, and you know that shotgun house, and you know she lost three babies, four. Oh. She lost one in, as a baby, and the other three were killed as adults, two to suicide, one was murdered. Oh my God. So I'd sat down and did an interview with her. I interviewed her for like three days because she had lost, she'd worked to, and you know what was so fascinating, Natasha, um, she, uh, she, we found her when she died, she, we, we got her Bible and she, she had annotated the book of Job in these real, she was, she was great because she was a devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I remember how she entered the story of her life. And she entered the story of her life by telling about the time she went to Chicago as a kid and made snow cones out of snow, mm -hmm. right? Made snowballs and how the syrup was put on it. And then she went silent. And then everything was, everything was in the eyes. Everything you could see, she just started looking distant. And whenever that distant look came on her, yeah. right? We knew she was someplace else. 
and we knew how to read it. And then the fascinating thing, I'm connecting this because Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's as we call it, <laughs> right? She, 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 she had, she, she had it and she forgot all about the death. So it became, it reversed. Right. So all the babies were alive now in this really fascinating way. It's just home. And what does it mean? You know, I was saying this to Jasmine Ward when I was talking with her not too long. And I was like, I just feel home in certain places in your work. I mean, I can feel it. Just the way you describe the pine trees and how it's different than when you go up upstate. And so there was this moment in the first part of, of the memoir where I, I just sat down, right? Because it felt so familiar to me mm-hmm. in so many ways. Now, what, does it mean, what did it mean for you? Okay, go ahead. Say, I'm gonna wanna- oh, no, I just, I was just going to say that... Um, yeah, the, the, the power of that place of, of, it almost seems magical when I think of it now, that home, that, that enclave of close relations where I felt completely safe, um, such that when I was writing the book, I spent so long on that first chapter, Another Country, because I didn't want to leave it. I wanted to just stay in it and continue to just write it, to, to, mm-hmm. to live in that place that um, we had to leave behind. What was it like making your way to Atlanta? You know, I, I did that too. You know, there's a Moss Point diaspora in Atlanta. So, <laughs> so I mean, a whole bunch of us are there. My sister and brother still live there. I went to Morehouse. Uh, so, you know, what was, what, what did it, I mean, you, you describe it in the book, but talk a little bit about that. Because that's a different kind of South. Yeah, you know, I I, I think I, I didn't want to go. I um, it was I think you know I realize now a, a traumatic thing to move away from my grandmother and great aunts and uncles and and my father who was by then in New Orleans. Um, and and yeah, it, it was a different world. You know, I wonder if you had this experience. Like the first thing I had to learn was that we didn't say Jank and we said Joning. You know. <laughs> So it was like, you know, shifting culturally. But the fascinating thing to me, now, even though I left when I was uh, six, and I went back every summer and spent every three months of every summer back with my grandmother, mm-hmm. you know, that um, that um, dialect or uh, test, uh, the New York Times had it um, mm-hmm. in the paper mm-hmm. one time, you can take it and it's going to, based on what words you use, pinpoint where you're from. Now, even though I guess I grew up in Georgia because I moved there at such a young age, um, that test still pinpointed me to the Gulf Coast. I think the the range wow. was somewhere like South Alabama to 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 um, to like Louis, the Louisiana border, but that's where that's it knew exactly because that was still in me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like it's like when you know the difference between someone saying fixing and finna. Yeah, I'm right. fixing to go. I'm finna go. Right. And then you can, <laughs> you can make all sorts of things. Another one. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that moment though, right? Because there's there's a moment in in the book where where you know you you make an adjustment, right? You 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 you're engaging in that 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 grand tradition of signifying, mm-hmm. and there's some there's some levity there. There's joy there, um, right? There's there's a sense in which you know you're inhabiting or you're 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 describing right? The space right, where you learn the difference between Jenkins and Jonan, if there's right. a difference at all, right? That, that's pretty. Mm-hmm. There's, there's also this, this where you, t- you know, you, you talk about my, inexplic- my inexplicable silence or that, that line where you write, 
you who like to seek as much as you like to hide, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's just something about, um, and we've talked about it, but it's, it's something that stood out to me uh, as I was reading the book and um, the restraint um, that, that you weren't revealing everything. Right. Well, no, I mean, you know, one of the things in terms of the, the, the shape of the book and the organization of it, you know, I, I, I begin from, from the first line with the fact that my mother is dead. Mm-hmm. I, I want to remove as much of the sensational uh, aspect of this and what might, what might engender in readers a purient interest. Um, I wanted a reader to travel through the book knowing that she's dead, but hoping at every page that she somehow miraculously survives this. Mm -hmm. And there are countless stories I could have told. The situation was what it was. You know, after we left, I grew up in a house of domestic violence and even though my mother did everything to get away and did get away and got a divorce and was divorced from him for nearly two years, he, and he continued to stalk her and he killed her. That was the situation I was in. But there are countless stories I could have mm-hmm. told about that. Mm-hmm. And so in choosing to tell the story, I am trying as much as possible to be in control of the story that I tell you. And as you mentioned earlier on, I'm letting you know that I'm doing it. I am composing just just as in that moment I had to compose myself. I had to to heal the the fissure in the self that trauma might have been causing by writing about it, by being able to tell myself a story about who I was and where I was going. The, the, the larger framing of the book is the same thing. It is about deciding that this is the story that I need to tell. And it is not a story um, about victimhood. It is a story about the triumph over what might have otherwise eroded my sense of self. It is about the way that even the most difficult thing, the most horrible thing, Losing my mother in the way that I did can be made meaningful rather than senseless if it indeed is a part of the larger narrative of my becoming exactly who I am. Mm. You say in, in some of the interviews that you know you are your you are a reflection of your mother. You are your mother's reflection. Talk a little bit about that. Why that's so important, right? That you have to tell this as you became Natasha Trethewey, right? Yeah. Why was it important to tell your mother's story? Well, you know, because I feel like um, well, there were two things. One, I wanted to write um, a very different book than this. I wanted to. I wanted to write a biography of my mother. I mm. wanted to research her as the way that I might have reser- researched um, a historical figure that I was writing about. Mm. Um, because I wanted the fullness of who she was to be on display so that the world could know how remarkable she was. I could have spent my life, the rest of my life, doing that. Mm. And so at some point, 
it occurred to me that if you needed to know, if you wanted to know, and if I weren't to show you who my mother was, you need only look at me. Mm. You need to see what she made. And that will tell you everything about who she was, which is why I have, you know, that epigraph from Shakespeare's sonnet number three, thou art thy mother's glass, and she in thee calls back the lovely April of her prime. My Lord. And I needed to tell it too, because, you know, my mother was, I felt like being erased. She was being reduced to, you know, an afterthought or a footnote in the story of Natasha Trethewey, uh, the writer, the Pulitzer Prize winning mm-hmm. poet. She was being reduced and not understood as the very reason that I am a writer and mm-hmm. that contending with that immeasurable grief is what made me a writer. It was easy for people to also draw this line straight from my father, my white parent, who was also a poet, to me as if somehow because he was a poet, I'm a poet. Like I am Athena sprung from mm. his head, you know? Mm. And that is not how I got to be who I am. Certainly, um, you know, I talk about my father's influence on me in that early chapter too, but that's not the thing that made me a writer. And, you know, even I, I, even the transcript, the, the yellow pad, mm-hmm. where you just allow your mother's prose to stand, the economy, mm-hmm. the attention to detail, the way in which she's describing. I mean, it's just, you know, the rhythm of the sentences themselves, mm-hmm. just to let them stand on their own in some ways was was kind of, okay, exhibit A. Right. It is, yes, because I could have tried to tell you how resilient and brilliant and patient and matter of fact and direct that she was, or I could just let you see for yourself. Exactly. That's what I wanted. So I was reading it like, damn, you know, because you get caught up in the story, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but again, you're doing something to me as a reader, right? As a writer, you're 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 invoking something, and that moment for me was 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 extraordinary because I got a sense of, of of Gwendolyn in a way that that went beyond right the story, right? If that makes sense, went beyond how people made their wind. Let me ask you this question. Let's let's get beyond Memorial Drive. Um, what's next for you? Uh, you know, I would love to write some poems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, you know, there's some things I'm thinking about. Um, my my usual obsessions are rearing up in me again, and and I think manifesting in uh, a, another kind of research, another. But I I think I I know it's taken me back to Mississippi. That is a geography that I cannot escape both physical and uh, psychological landscape to which I keep returning. I've been, I've been, you know, it's fascinating, Natasha. If, if I, I, I'm sorry, I'm calling you Natasha. I have to. <laughs> <Of course>. uh, <laughs> um, I've been doing the same thing, right? I've been taking notes, you know, um, yeah. because finishing the Baldwin book, mm-hmm. um, you know, before I could write a sentence, it's almost as if Jimmy was telling me, you know, you're going to have to deal with your mess, bruh. You're gonna, have to, you're gonna have to deal with the fact that you're this vulnerable little boy, and so it threw me back, to, you know, to to my town. You know, you know, Moss Point. It's it's its nickname is the River City. You know, all of those bayous running through, mm-hmm. right? And and 
I'm just trying to make sense of, of the smells, right? Like I remember school, you know, you knew school was going to start when the fall air would mix with the porgy plant and yeah. the paper mill. The paper it mill. Create, it created this interesting <laughs> scent, right? But just to return home, do you see yourself? I mean, would you would you describe yourself as a Southern writer or a Mississippi writer? I mean, I know Kiesi asked you that question, but I wanted to, because I'm beginning to think of myself not so much as a Mississippi writer, but someone who cannot escape the fact that I am from Mississippi. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I often think of uh, Ellison's, um, you know, revision of Heraclitus's axiom, you know, to, from character's fate to geography is fate. And I definitely believe that um, geography is fate and that uh, who I am is so deeply rooted in that place that, yeah, I'm, I'm a Southern writer, um, but I, I suppose there's many, I am a black writer, I'm a woman writer, but I, right. I can't separate any of those things. They're all intertwined and rooted in that place. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't want to keep you too long. It has been such a pleasure. After we get through with this, or get beyond this this madness of COVID, yeah. maybe one day we'll be able to sit down over a glass of wine and just talk about all sorts of things. I have that, so much I want to ask. That you. would be wonderful. And we can compare gumbo recipes. Oh, indeed. Did indeed. you make seafood gumbo? Oh, I, I, it has to be. I'll put sausage in my gumbo. Exactly. Who There's does nothing that? else in it. It's seafood gumbo. It's seafood. You don't put, you know, Who puts all that okra other stuff in there. So, You put okra in your gumbo? I do actually put okra. But some people, some people put sausage and chicken. And, and chicken. It, no, no. My grandmother lived for a little while in New Orleans, and she came back talking about how they just throw everything in their gumbo, and she does not believe in it. To my mind, it, the chicken and the sausage, change, they change the taste of it. Yeah. You know? So you, you, you make a filet gumbo? or Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do. So, you know, I, I do that. And, you know, my mother also, because, you know, the coast is everywhere. When we even make our dressing, she puts crab meat in her dressing. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I put I put oysters in mine. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See, I see you. You were in Atlanta, but no, no, nope. no. <laughs> well, this has been really lovely. Thank it you. has been wonderful, and just know that um, you've moved me beyond words. I appreciate you and the gift that you've given us over and over again. Thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to meeting you in person. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.